Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, there's a documentary out now about Dick Gregory, the black stand-up comedian and political activist of the 60s and after. It's called The One and Only Dick Gregory. It's on Showtime. John Powers will comment. First up, we need to talk about what happened in Afghanistan this week and for the two decades before that. And for that, we turn to Andrew Basevich. His writings have appeared in the New York Times, the London Review of Books, The Nation, lots of other places. He's Professor Emeritus of History and International Relations at Boston University and President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He's written many books, including America's War for the Greater Middle East. Andrew Basevich, welcome back. Thanks very much. Over almost 20 years in Afghanistan, the U.S. lost 2,400 troops and personnel, another 21,000 Americans have been wounded. The mission costs more than a trillion dollars, including something like $80 billion to train and arm the Afghan army. That's the army that did not resist the recent Taliban advance, and now the Taliban controlled the entire country. The last Americans are fleeing. We announced our goal in Afghanistan back at the beginning we said our goal was to bring democracy, pluralism, and social justice to Afghanistan. Was that ever possible? Could America bring democracy, pluralism, and social justice to Afghanistan or any other place? Uh, no. <laughs> Why was that not obvious at the time? I think that's the, the pertinent question. My own answer would be that those sorts of claims expressed the stupefying hubris that swept through the ranks of the policy elite in the wake of the Cold War. Hubris that stemmed from the conviction that the outcome of the Cold War was an, was an ideological victory. Liberal democracy had overcome all adversaries. But also the impression grew that it was, in essence, a military victory, that the Soviets quit because they knew they couldn't keep up, they couldn't compete. And that impression then was seemingly reaffirmed by the Gulf War of, of 1991. Bottom line, you know, here we are in the in the wake of, of 9-11, and we we think we think we're gonna reshape the world, even the most distant parts of the world that we had no understanding of. So just to remind us of some of the headlines over the last uh, two decades. Remember when George Bush declared mission accomplished in Afghanistan in 2003 and then invaded Iraq? People are asking, what if we had not invaded Iraq? Maybe we could have devoted more resources and attention to Afghanistan. Or remember Obama's surge that was in 2009, brought the total of American troops to 100,000 with an additional 40,000 from NATO. Whatever happened to the surge? The whole American mission really was to train and equip the Afghan army. But didn't the Afghans already know how to fight? Hadn't they been fighting for, you know, decades, more than a century? The real question is, 
why the Afghan army didn't fight to defend the government in Kabul, really, ever? I, I think the answer is because the soldiers who enlisted in that army, some of whom almost immediately disappeared, they didn't believe that the Afghan government was worth fighting and dying for. I think you can charge the United States military with failing in that we didn't design an Afghan military that was appropriate to the circumstances. But as other commentators have said, to include the members of the Biden administration, it was not within our capability to, to motivate. And the, the army was not properly motivated. Again, you know, we're, all this recalls Vietnam at the, at, the, at the last part, when the army of the Republic of Vietnam basically collapsed. We've now seen the Afghan security forces collapse. I think in both cases, uh, the soldiers didn't think that the, the existing political order was worth fighting for. And so they refused to fight. And that existing political order, of course, was put in place and funded by us. Uh, exactly. But it, but it was also imposed. You know, I, I, I can't recall the specific date, but you remember that uh, early on, uh, the United States and its partners installed Hamid Karzai uh, as the president of Afghanistan. And, and I think it's not too cynical to say that U.S. officials expected that Karzai would, by and large, uh, play along, you would cooperate. And, and it was in a matter of years that Karzai was demanding that the United States leave, demanding that U.S. forces depart, that U.S. forces were not welcome in his country that he supposedly governed. And of course, the response was Washington was, well, no, we're going to stay. We're going to stay even though we're obviously not welcome here. Given the history of Afghanistan, going back to the days of the Russian occupation, going back to the days of, of British imperialism, it would appear, I'm not a, Afghan, a historian of Afghanistan, but it would, it would appear that Afghans don't particularly cotton to foreigners being in their country, telling them how to do their business. Uh, and, and they resist. And again, historically, they've de demonstrated a remarkable uh, capacity to resist against uh, na imperialist nations that, by almost any measure, uh, are, are more powerful. So that's the picture over the last couple of decades, over the last century. There's been a lot of discussion in the last few days about the last week or two, and lots of people are saying Biden ha handled this badly should have done it differently. Lynn Cheney, for example, says the status quo of a couple of weeks ago could have been maintained and the Taliban takeover, at least of Kabul, could have been prevented. She says if Biden had kept 2,500 to 3,500 American forces on the ground conducting counterterrorism and counterintelligence operations. What do you think? I think that's an interesting bit of speculation. Uh, there's really no reason uh, to to take that uh, seriously. The charge is certainly correct uh, that Biden mismanaged the the final extrication of U.S. forces, and and for that he should be held accountable. But to to go from there to saying somehow Biden lost the war, I think is a is an entirely entirely inappropriate leap, and it lets it lets all kinds of people off the hook. You know, it, it lets it lets. Uh, what, four other administrations uh, off the hook. It lets uh, 
Unless both parties off the hook, unless the generals off the hook. I think the actual responsibility for this failure is widely shared. It, we should assess, you know, who ought to be held accountable. We should try to learn something uh, from from such a disastrous uh, outcome. But I think the notion that, gosh, if we just kept a couple thousand troops for what <laughs> a few more decades, uh, that that somehow that would have produced a happy outcome. I think it's a it's a comment that simply designed to score uh, partisan points. I guess I say this because I'm not in Washington, but this is not a time to be trying to score partisan points. It's a time to try to contain the damage, you know, to 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 put some damper on the scope of this catastrophe, and then to try to come to a deeper nonpartisan understanding of of how this happened. There is a strongly nonpartisan aspect to this to this end game. Trump made that deal with the Taliban negotiated in Doha that we would pull out completely if they stopped attacking us. And the government in Kabul was left on its own to negotiate whatever it could with the Taliban. In other words, we negotiated with the enemy while excluding the president of Afghanistan. How could there be a clearer signal that we wanted to get the heck out of Dodge as, as soon as possible? And the Taliban stuck with their part of the deal. And, and Joe Biden stuck with the deal that Trump had uh, negotiated. And, of course, some of the Monday morning quarterbacks are saying, well, that was a big mistake. Biden should not have fulfilled the agreement that Trump made with the Taliban. What do you think? I think you're making the key point uh, that uh, this is a bipartisan failure. I think anybody who offers a contrary argument is being simply dishonest and and cynical. Now, there's plenty of dishonesty and cynicism in Washington. I get that. I don't think that that we ordinary citizens should take all that seriously. We ordinary citizens, again, yes, let's tag Biden with accountability for the mismanagement of the drawdown, the final stages of the drawdown, a, a drawdown, as you point out, uh, that was initiated by other people. But then let's let's widen the aperture, the inquiry about how this all came to pass. Only then will we get to truthful conclusions. And one other party I just want to mention here who shares the responsibility. We've mentioned the four presidents. We've mentioned the, the generals. What we've seen, especially in the last couple of weeks, but of course over the last couple of decades, is also a gigantic intelligence failure. The CIA, on which we spend a huge amount of money, did not seem to have any idea that the Taliban were about to uh, act so so quickly and so uh, completely. Should we be surprised that the CIA is missing the most important thing that has happened this year? Well, you know, not, not surprised, I suppose, but we know from the the so-called uh, Afghanistan papers published by the Washington Post, that government authorities were feeding the, the American people a line, that they, they had serious questions about the capacity of the Afghan security forces, about the legitimacy of the, legitimacy of the government. And they found it, I guess, politically convenient to dissemble. And it's only now that the consequences of that dissembling becomes apparent. I must say that, you know, I've been like like many people, I suppose, you know, I keep going back and forth between the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Guardian trying to figure out what the heck's going on. Uh, 
Uh, and it's astonishing. The frequent, frequency with which I'm now reading articles, the headline basically says, the U.S. knew all along that it was losing. Well, if it knew all along, <laughs> I have to say, nobody told me. <laughs> I don't think anybody <laughs> told the rest of the American public. So the responsibility for this debacle, I think, uh, should be widely shared. And, of course, the last time the Taliban ruled Afghanistan, they imposed their strict version of Sharia law. Afghan women were pretty much excluded from public life. Girls were prohibited from attending school. Female teachers and doctors and nurses worked under very strict rules. Public executions were the norm. Uh, often of women accused of various moral offenses. There were these horrible spectacles of executions on sports fields and in stadiums. Do you think uh, all that is going to start up again in the next few weeks? I have no idea. I don't think I would assume that the Taliban of the you know, late 1990s, early 2000s uh, is necessarily the Taliban that exists today. Uh, again, I, I don't pretend to understand uh, what, what's going on in, in their leadership. But the last time they behaved, as you you accurately described them behaving, uh, they ended up paying a pretty pretty heavy price. It could be uh, that they would like to remain in power longer. It could be uh, that they would find some value in uh, workable relations with other major powers, whether the United States or somebody else. And therefore, it could be that they would temper their conduct. I'm not predicting that they will, uh, but it seems to me that that is at least a possibility. I would argue that the United States now needs to be seriously engaging with the with Afghanistan's neighbors uh, in order to try to uh, identify uh, a, a cooperative program uh, that can help lead to stability in Afghanistan and perhaps lessen the Taliban's propensity uh, for this kind of uh, egregious behavior. I'm not saying that's going to be easy, but I do believe that Afghanistan's neighbors, Pakistan, Iran, Russia, China, India, they have a real interest in this country, not simply being a place where anarchy prevails. Uh, and it could be that they would be able to exert themselves in some way uh, to produce a you know, a, a, a somewhat less dark outcome than the really dark outcome uh, that we're speculating may be on the horizon. But, you know, let's see. Let's see. 20 years of hubris, ignorance, and incompetence, promises made, promises abandoned, and now defeat and failure. Andrew Basevich, his essay, America is Not an Indispensable Nation, appears in The Nation and Tom Dispatch. You can read him at thenation.com. Thank you, Andy. This was great. Thanks. There's a documentary out now about Dick Gregory, the black stand-up comedian and political activist of the 60s and after. It's called The One and Only Dick Gregory, and it's on Showtime. For comment, we turn to John Powers. He's critic at large on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, where he has an audience of several million listeners. He's also been a film critic for Vogue and before that for the late lamented LA Weekly. We reached him today at home in Pasadena, John Powers, welcome back. Glad to be here, John. 
Well, in my lectures in American history classes on the civil rights movement, I always quoted one of Dick Gregory's most famous jokes, and it's the joke that opens this documentary. I sat in at a segregated lunch counter for months, and when they finally agreed to serve me, they didn't have what I wanted. You know, it's funny, but it's also a profound statement about the limitations of seeking integration into white society in America. And the time, at the time he told it, the early 60s, this was a moment when the nonviolent civil rights movement for integration was being challenged by a more radical black power movement. So Dick Gregory, in this one joke, captures a lot of what made him important then and what makes him important to us today. I was going to say the funny thing about that joke is that I think it's almost better now than it was because at the time, the point was they, they, they didn't have what I wanted. But it's the point about sitting at the counter, whereas years later, you realize that what it's about is actually integration didn't offer me what I wanted because I still wanted to be black. I still wanted, you know, I still wanted to have my culture. I still wanted to like the things I like. And at the time, I'm, I'm not sure audiences would have heard that. I, I think black audiences would have, but okay. I think the white audiences who loved him, you know, m might not have heard that part of it. He's an interesting figure in lots of ways. The first black crossover comedian to make it, which is itself a remarkable, I mean, it was, was remarkable when it happened. I was a kid when it happened. I remember seeing him on TV. Well, the documentary says the beginning of his career can be dated precisely to the date, to the hour, the first night he played the Playboy Club in Chicago. Tell us that story. He got invited on because the person who was going to play couldn't make it. And that was Professor Irwin Corey, <laughs> who, in fact, was a, cha a champion and supporter of Gregory, which is, is interesting. I mean, he wasn't just a nonsense spouter. Anyway, they invited him to play at the Playboy Club to fill in for Erin Corey. And before it started, they said, oh, there is a problem. You, there's a problem. The entire audience is basically Southern businessmen here for a convention. So you're going to be talking to a, an audience of basically white Southerners. Do you want to leave? And in fact, he said no. And in fact, this was the perfect place for him because it was always Gregory's genius that he could actually make jokes that white people got and, la and laughed at. And at the same time, were pointedly true racial jokes that white people knew were true. And what happened was he was there and he played for three hours. It became one of those legendary things where you put the black guy in front of a pack of wolves. And in, and in fact, he wows them. They loved him. And the word of that appearance got to the then reigning host of late night TV, Jack Parr, who invited Dick Gregory uh, on his show. But Dick Gregory at first refused the invitation. He said the issue was sitting on the couch. What was that about? At that point, they would bring entertainers out and the black entertainers would entertain and then leave. And if you were a white entertainer, you did, you did your bit, and then you sat next to Jack as an equal. So the whole point is if you sat on the couch, that meant you were somebody. You know, and it meant you were somebody who was being acknowledged and recognized. You were kind of, you know, given that the, the Tonight Show at that point was, was kind of a ritual way of, of like expressing what America thought or what wanted to think, to be on that couch was a kind of embrace. If you weren't on the couch, that meant you were different. You were other, you weren't fully accepted. So Gregory insisted on being on the couch. And in fact, 
after that, he went from having made, I believe, $1,500 the previous year to being offered $5,000 a night. Such was the power of sitting on that couch. He could have still gone on and his, and his shows would have been more valuable anyway. He refused to do it unless he could sit on the couch like a white person would. Like all documentaries of this type, it features a lot of talking heads. Of course, they tell us Dick Gregory was funny, but they tell us other stuff too. Tell us about the talking heads here and, and what you thought about them. There are the you know, people like Chris Rock, who was who pointing out something that was true about Gregory, which was that Gregory had this kind of calm confidence on stage. You know, I mean, Rock even said, compares himself to something kind of like how he's desperate to entertain you. You want to make sure he holds it. Whereas Gregory was slow, he would pause, he would time his jokes with a cigarette. And that's the kind of thing that basically no black comic had done before. The famous black comics who played the Chitlin circuit and who could never make it, people like Red Fox, often worked blue and they often worked raucous and rowdy. And Gregory was more, I think, you know, in thinking about it, was more a little bit of the cool style of jazz from that period. He's in a suit. You know, he's calm, he's measured, he's intelligent, and he's not trying to woo you overtly. His son talks, various political people talk about, about, about the importance of what he was doing. The talking hits, I think, aren't especially perceptive in general. The newsreel footage shows you often what they're saying about his bravery in going to the South. I think it's probably a difficult thing to get good interviews about Gregory. Um, but then I think the filmmaker you know, missed some chances about talking about what made Gregory different and, and his comic style, how it worked so well with white audiences. Um, I think there could have been more of that. I mean, so, so in general, I don't think it's a fantastic documentary. Its shape is not particularly nice. Would you agree with me on that, John? I would agree with you that there's uh, there's a lot that this documentary did not do and could have done a lot better. And one of the things is I think they have too many talking heads telling us that Dick Gregory was funny and they not enough footage of Dick Gregory, who was on TV all the time. So there must be a lot of footage. Of oh, him. no, there's a lot of footage. You know, no, it, 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 it was that weird documentary style of somehow wanting an authority to tell you something that is clear to your <laughs> clear to your sight every time he's on being funny he's funny you need not a single person to tell you he's funny <laughs> then they're saying he's brave yet if you simply and anybody who's going to see this documentary knows the story that you had to be brave to go to mississippi to promote civil rights that, at that point so let's talk about the mississippi uh, part he, he killed on tv he was making five thousand dollars a night in 60, 61, and then in 1962, he went to Mississippi, we are told, because Medgar called him. Yes. This is Medgar Evers, who was the, the fearless head of the NAACP in Mississippi. Mississippi was, I don't think we even need to say, the scariest place, the place where Martin Luther King really did not go. It was SNCC territory, only the bravest, youngest people it's where the it's where the famous murders took place of the civil rights workers, you know. It's it's the place where even the FBI tried to do a little bit, you know. Even when they weren't doing anything, that they realized it was so bad in Mississippi, you probably had to at least pretend to do something. So he went down and began promoting civil rights, which very quickly he knew was his calling. That somehow being a comedian seemed like child's play to him. I think he was good at it. It could make money. It gave him a platform, so you do it. 
But I think he never really thought, oh, that his life's work was being a professional comedian. I do think his life's work was being an activist. And the most important of his life's work was the civil rights stuff that he did. You know, he did other stuff later on, which you will talk about, I'm sure. And indeed, he was a few a huge figure in, in the civil rights movement in the North as well as in the South. In the book that Mike Davis and I wrote about L.A. in the 60s, he appears half a dozen times in Los Angeles. When, for, for example, when Martin Luther King came to L.A. in 1961 to support the Freedom Riders, Dick Gregory was the MC who introduced Martin Luther King. 40,000 people came to that event. It was at the old sports arena. Uh, and King on stage called it the greatest civil rights rally ever held in the United States because 40,000 people had shown up. That's not in the film. In 63, King came back to L.A. for another rally after the awesome Birmingham campaign. That was King's campaign that was attacked by police with dogs and fire hoses. And this one was even bigger. This one was at the old Wrigley Field Uh, The governor showed up, Sammy Davis Jr. was there, Paul Newman, Burt Lancaster, and the MC was Dick Gregory, who had just gotten bailed out of jail in Birmingham to join the rally. That's not in the film either, but that's the kind of figure that he was at this point. No, no, he was. And in fact, there is, I think, something that is in the film that is wonderful. There's There's a photograph that they talk about of Gregory MCing and Martin Luther King sitting in the back laughing in a way that I've never seen a photo of Martin Luther King laughing. Yes. He looks delighted by what Gregory's saying in, in, in a way that, that's, that's just magnificent. And then Gregory became an anti-war activist later in the 60s and ran for president in 1968 as an anti-war candidate. This story is also missing from the film. 68 was, of course, the year that the Vietnam War was at the center of American politics. The incumbent president... LBJ uh, was responsible for sending half a million Americans to fight there. And here in California, anti-war forces launched the Peace and Freedom Party to challenge what everybody assumed would be LBJ's re-election campaign. The Dems, of course, ended up running Hubert Humphrey after LBJ withdrew from his own re-election campaign. Peace and Freedom did not want to be an all-white party. They formed an alliance with the Black Panthers in California And then they had an open convention to pick their presidential candidate. And Dick Gregory campaigned. But the Panthers insisted that one of their own be the presidential candidate. And they insisted it be Eldridge Cleaver, the black radical author and somewhat crazy uh, militant. Uh, So Eldridge was the nominee instead of Dick Gregory. And Eldridge Cleaver was not old enough to serve as president as required by the Constitution. So he didn't appear on the ballot. He was ruled off the ballot, a complete fiasco. And it could have been Dick Gregory. Dick Gregory was on the ballot as a presidential candidate in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Virginia, three other states. That chapter is missing from this documentary. In the mid-70s, as the 60s came to an end, those who had given their lives to the movement had to find other things to do. Tom Hayden became a Democrat and got elected. Huey Newton became a drug dealer and a criminal. Jerry Rubin became a stockbroker. Jesse Jackson split with the SCLC and launched Push to Push Black Capitalism. And what did Dick Gregory do? Well, he be- he became an advocate for health food, really, and healthy and healthy eating. 
it probably didn't seem to be like the correct issue at the time. And then you realize that, that, you, that you move on 50 years later and, it's, and it seems visionary and wise and in fact politically and racially sensitive because of, because of course, probably the people forced to have the worst diets in America were African-Americans you know, and probably, probably indigenous people as well. He saw this as a, an, a health issue and was right about what the food does to the body and how corporations stuff you with the bad stuff. It was actually the food stuff was then linked to ecology. When he moved, he didn't become a drug dealer. Or like many people who were radical, who were who into politics, who then went back to just being showbiz figures. Gregory kept with the activism on and on and on. So yes, I agree that he was right about what was wrong with the American's diet and especially black American's diet. But by the end of the 80s, he had developed his own health product. A Caribbean-based one, yes. The Bahamian diet, he called it. This was a powdered meal replacement drink. This was a, became a diet fad. It made him millions of dollars briefly, but then it crashed and burned and left him bankrupt and impoverished. So the, the health and wellness chapter of his life, which started out so well, does not end up well. Oh, no, it, it ends quite badly. It is part of the Dick Gregory story was that he was never good at business. And, and, that, and that would include some of the admirable things we're saying, that you, know, that you cancel the club and then you feel bad, so you go back and give a show for free. You, you, you do all sorts of stuff for free, and you spend your money flying back and forth across the country, which then I, I was reading somewhere, I don't think this was in the documentary, that sometimes from calling his family and being on the road, he'd have $3,000 phone bills. Nobody was flying him there. Like what he was doing wasn't like the kind of charity where they fly the celebrities in first class. He was paying to do all this stuff himself. And so that sort of crashing and burning when he finally had a big moneymaker seems of a piece with how he wanted to live his life because the money part never really did seem to matter to him. And this part of the documentary is narrated by one of his 10 children and by his widow, wonderful woman named Lil, who we're told was the center of his life, even though he hardly spent any time at home. These people are very eloquent and moving when they talk about him. No, they are. You know, be, you know this isn't one of the, what, you know, what is it called, pathographies, where the children are talking about how awful their, their parents were. Even someone as great as Nina Simone, when you see her daughter talk, you realize that Nina made her daughter really, really unhappy in her life hellish. And these kids loved their dad. And they thought he was swell. And when he was with them, you know, he, he was with them and he liked them. And he, he was gone all the time, but found a way of making them feel loved. And they love him back, as does his wife. You know, you, you don't get, I mean, as I say, normally when you see this, there's always a few with that kind of that kind of edge about how, yeah, dad sold me out for the cause. But, but in fact, either there, there are those children who felt that way and the, and the film didn't want to include them, you know, or they, actually he just managed to pull it off. The one and only Dick Gregory, an amazing story about an amazing man, not such an amazing documentary, now on Showtime. John Powers, thanks for talking with us. This was great. Always happy to do it. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. 
Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.